Hello and welcome to You Don't Know Lit. My name is Nick Argyris and this week I'm looking for the best book about boats. To help me are two high school English teachers. <laughs> Nick, my name is Joe Holshu. I'm a high school English teacher. I'm also a bit of a minor boat enthusiast in my in my later years. Um, and if you are looking for the best book about boats, I brought a book I love called The Boys in the Boat, the true story of an American team's epic journey to win gold at the 1936 Olympics. And Nick, that's not a spoiler because it says it right on the cover. All right. Well, right. and the, it's their quest, right? Everyone's quest. Like my quest is to win gold at the nineteen thirty-six Olympics. I don't think I'm going to hit it, but that's my quest. That's not um, a spoiler. No, it's not. Well, it is a spoiler if you're confused about who I am. Ahoy, Joe! Avast, Ahoy. Nick. This week I'm wearing boat shoes and a boater hat, and most importantly, a bow tie. <laughs> I brought a boat book too, and it's called "In the Heart of the Sea" by Nathaniel Philbrick. May your earlobes turn into assholes and shit on your shoulders. Hey, the plot doesn't fucking matter at all. This is what I think it's about. If you look closely <laughs> enough, every author was at some point a racist. Audiobooks don't count, right? All art is quite useless. <laughs> who, who told you that? Fun fact, that is how Joe laughs. <laughs>, <laughs>, <laughs> I wonder, is there ever such an oceany name as Nathaniel? Nathaniel, like, let's go through the oceany names. Jonah, probably. Blackbeard. Mm, Blackbeard. Oh, yeah. That's Ahab. way more Bodie. Oh, uh, Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot of more oceany names. So, yeah, what was it? Nathaniel? Nathaniel. Not very Bodie at all compared to some of these other options that we just yeah, listed. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Right. This is why I come to you guys for advice. Yeah. You tell me. Welcome. You came to the right place for boat <laughs> boat based advice. <laughs> um, Joe, when were you most recently on a boat? Um, I was most recently on a boat. Well, I I have had the COVID for the last week, um, which has really trimmed down on my boat time. But before that, um, I was on a boat. Oh, I'm on a boat a few times a week uh, as I row with my rowing my local rowing club. Great. Uh, I was. I just want to say that I was on a boat yesterday, nice. rolling around a lake. Wow, so good. I yeah. guess we could say I I have the most recent boat experience, but you maybe the Joe has the more the, the the more deep boat experience. Right. Maybe a depth of boat experience. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. I'm just making notes. If someone says bow, mm-hmm. do you think of boats? I do. Yes, Great. I do. I, I think about uh, like I am at a point now where things like bow and stern and gunnel yep. and port and all these things are just like I, I don't have to translate them so yep. much in my head anymore. Wow. Joe, do you have any? Um, this is great. Let's just keep it up. Um, mm-hmm. Are there yeah. any other maybe like not as popular boat terms that we could like good, enlighten good. the lit heads uh, on? Like really good. Let, let's give them some some, you know, some information to walk away with. Yeah, this is beautiful. Um, Nick, I, I actually brought a vocab quiz today that I was going to, to give during wow. my time, but instead so I, I think, would just do it. Let's just do it right now. Let's let's just do it right now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Here's the thing. I was going to do a, a also terminology a quiz, but I'm, I figured Joe would do it and I'm so glad you're doing it. Wow. What a gamble. All right, Nick, Nick, I've, I've just got a few terms here and these are, I should say, these are not boat specific because the lit heads, oh, th- they're studied people. Did say right? it was boat specific a minute ago. So yeah, that was the whole thing. Well, the, the, like they know what a gunnel is. They know what port is. They know what starboard is. Right? Okay. Like, no, they know I don't think stuff. anybody knows what any of that is. Keep going. Port is a nice <laughs> dessert wine. Ah, yes. <laughs> so this is specifically rowing boat specific like this is like when you are in a shell with oars rowing it with a bunch of other people next shell what is shell a, a, a rowing shell it's it's what you call the boat the boat is called a shell the, the boat is called a shell is this uh, sometimes a game? you could call it a skull no not a game no right now i'm just setting up the game oh okay is this joe <laughs> lectures us about what we should call a boat yeah <laughs> i was confused because he was saying the answer Okay, so Joe, how, what game is this? Did you, did you right, come up uh, with a cute little name? No, uh, in fact, this game is called Pop Quiz. Gamey uh, McGameface? <laughs> Gamey McGameface. Right, Nick, good. If you say to somebody in a boat, wow, you've got a great stroke, Jesus. what do you think that might mean? Uh, okay. Um, that would be like if you were with your grandpa and he was like crutching his heart and <laughs> kind of... 
Everything smelled. How is like, that great? He's is he evil? Everything is, smells is like good grapes. Because he's evil. It's like what a stroke. Yeah, yeah. It'd be yeah. like that. Yeah, that's a really good guess, Nick. Not exactly what the, what we're looking for. Okay. I think it's when um you're like being romantic and you just put your hand put your hand on their head. You sort of like move it down the hair. Oh, what's happening? In right. sort of a smoothing fashion. Oh, and right. it's maybe calming, but it's also strangely tender. Yeah, it's a great it's, stroke. What it's could it possibly? Stroke. What other possible trend, you know, interpretation could there be of that word? Though? I think I think we've got two, the two really good Nick. guesses, guys. Two really good answers. Um, in rowing terminology, though, a great stroke obviously uh, is the way that somebody pulls an oar through their wadi, uh, through the water, uh, the way that they synchronize all the very fine and deft movements that make up a really good stroke. Um, a stroke is also the person that sits at the. I guess it kind of looks like the front of the boat, the, the the person that sits there that all the other rowers follow. You would call that person the stroke because they set the rhythm and the pace for the boat. Okay. Yep. Okay. Nick, Nick I've got another one here. I hope it's a little bit harder than that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Nick, what if somebody says, oh, no, I caught a crab. Oh, no, I caught a crab. What are they referring to? <laughs> STD. Hey, Nick. Hey, Joe. Why are all of these vaguely sexual? <laughs> Answer the question, Joe. <laughs> Working with high schoolers, Joe has well, kind of taken on the sophomore. Well, it's, it's funny because when you're in a boat, like people say things like, oh, you got to follow that guy. He's got a great stroke. And it's done with such self-seriousness that you, you're not allowed to laugh at it. So you're kind of biting your tongue, looking mm-hmm. side-eyed at not other even people. A little giggle? Not even a little giggle. No, it's a very serious mm. environment. Uh, so yes, you, never be a you are not expected to laugh. Nick, if somebody catches a crab, what do they do? Um, they hit a rock with their oar. Ooh, good. Close. Do you know it, Ian? Yeah, Ian, do you, you know this one, it sounds like. Yeah, it's when you, I did this, I was, I was rowing on a boat yesterday and I had not rowed oh, for really? a long time. And so I was, I was catching a lot of crabs, and, which meant I was like, um, my, my oar was like going into the water, but I didn't dig it deep enough. And so it just kind of, kind of skid along the top of the water and it looked stupid, threw me off my balance, didn't help pull us forward and splashed everything. That's, just like a that's crab. exactly what catching a crab is. Um, sometimes if there's some great videos on YouTube, if you just watch people catching crabs in high speed races, sometimes it's when an, uh, uh, oarsman fails to get his oar out of the water and is thrown like with such ferocity because the boat is moving so quickly that sometimes people are lifted directly out of the boat by their oar when they catch a crab. That's hilarious. It's do they, very do they die? Yeah, they, they don't die. die. They, they get wet. Oh. They usually get wet. Some do though, Ian. Nick, I've just got one more vocab uh, <laughs> quiz word for you. Okay. Nick, if somebody says, has anyone seen the Cox box? Yeah. What Again, are they looking very, for? Yeah. I think Joe, I don't know if Joe's making this sexual or if just boating is just so sexual, you know, on its just, own. Or, right. or, or, check it out. In the old or, days. Or, that's a boat term. Or, it's a good one. Or, yeah, exactly. That was it's good. It's also a mining, a mining term. <laughs> In the old days when people were on boats a lot, they couldn't go home and be with their honeys very much. Mm. And so probably all that frustration, just like mm. they were like, just it was, un, right it was un, unintentional, but mm. everything got very kind of blue. Right. Joy, in, the color of the water. Innuendic. Yes. Boat prison, basically. Boat prison. Yeah. Yeah. Boat prison. Cool. What was the word? Cox box. Uh, <laughs> you're looking to tell cox me what a cox box, box is. Uh, I guess that's what I ca- we call your pants. <laughs> Pants was the guess. Uh, um, <laughs> Ian, do you want to t- care to care to take a step? Ian's woofing down a sandwich right now. Very unprofessional. Um, Ian has brought a party. I'm being sub. very he's, unprofessional. He's brought an 18 inch pastrami sub, and he's just cocksboxing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> All I know. Is that it's probably spelled C-O-X, mm. and that's probably a reference to the coxswain. Yeah. But I don't remember what the coxswain does, yep. and I don't remember. I don't know why he would have a box, so mm. he, she, they would have a box, so I I, I, I plead the fifth. Uh, yeah, Ian, you get a half point for this. Um, the coxswain is the person that sits at the front of the boat. Uh, he, he yells at everybody else, traditionally through a megaphone, but these days through a cox box, which is a little piece of electronic equipment that amplifies his voice. It's wired up to speakers in the boat and also does things like keeps track of uh, the stroke rate and how fast the boat is going and things like that. 
I've seen this. Like, so if you have like um, a tracheotomy, it goes it attaches to your neck. <laughs> and throat, yeah, you throat, got it. That's exactly throat. what a cox box is. <laughs> Very good. Very funny. Um, excellent game, Joe. Thank you. Three and once out, again, it is not a game. It is sexual. A quiz. Uh, welcome, <laughs> lit heads. To you don't know lit uh, sexual, or as we call it, strongly podcast or every week. I pick a theme, and Ian and Joe, two high school English teachers, bring book recommendations. And just to upset one of them, we pick a winner. Of course, not a winning book, but more so a loser amongst Ian and Joe. Mm -hmm. uh, and to yeah. keep us on track, we do have some show rules. Rule number one, only unavoidable spoilers. Gentlemen, the purpose of the show is to not ruin books, is it? Mm -hmm. uh, rule number two, oh, omit it's not? needless words oh, this joe is, right the yes. purpose of this show is to not ruin the show and then rule number three uh only winning matters and just please keep that in mind as you're presenting your your highly sexual books today okay and of course we do have our shadow rules uh as always this week they are man overboard hoist the mainsail and haul off the stuncil main chains right so, and who's got my cox box right that's the fourth shadow rule no, no no the rule is the rule is i know you have my cox box give it back to me oh that's right i always forget <laughs> that one um gentlemen uh do you want to take 30 seconds to tell me what your book is about uh joseph you can go first I would love to, Nick. Nick, in 1936, America is in the midst of the Great Depression. The West Coast is still the frontier, and Adolf Hitler is eager to show off a new Germany to the world when Berlin hosts the Olympics. I just want an update for Adolf Hitler at any point. And Adolf Hitler is about eight years old. What is Adolf Hitler doing right now? The day of rowing, Germany wins the first five races, but the prize of the day is the men's eight. The Germans are expected to win. If not, the Germans than surely the Italians, but nobody expects the ragtag group of nine lanky Northwesterners. Oh, thought you were going to say Jamaicans. All right. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, is this cool running? This is this. I, guys, I brought cool running. Cool Ian. Yeah. Yeah, go. The year is 1820. Adolf Hitler is going to be born in 79 years. Uh, in 1820, the whale ship Essex was rammed and sunk by a whale. The crew survived, but found themselves becalmed in open boats in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. The book I brought this week, Nathaniel Philbrick's In, in the Heart of the Sea, follows the ill-fated voyage of the Essex and the tragedy of its crew's struggle for survival. That's right, Ian. Do they turn to cannibalism? Just go first. No spoilers. <laughs> this sounds great. Wow. Why don't... Hey, I have a question. You guys both are whale people. You know about whales. Um, Nick, is that true? Yeah, about as much as I'm a boat person. Keep uh -huh. going. Why don't whales hit boats more often? Is it just because the ocean is big and boats are small? Like, sometimes I see videos of people out Probably, in kayaks, yeah. and you can see the shadows of whales below them, and the yeah. whales will come up to breach. Why don't those kayaks just get wiped out? So... I actually, the, the book goes into this a little bit. Uh, so I can, I can actually give you a, an informed answer that, to that. That is why I asked. Whales have um, a pretty sophisticated, like, sort of echolocation. Many of them do. So they can Sonar. use sound to determine and, and also, um, also uh, eyesight. Uh, so they Their can eyes. tell, like, yeah, they, they can see, oh, there's a boat there or there's right. a ship there. Uh, or there's something there and I'm not interested in eating it or I maybe don't believe I can eat it. So I'm going to leave it alone. Sure. Um, so I, and, and whales are quite intelligent, we believe. So they probably have some degree of like danger avoidance. Um, but when they but they do, they do. Whales do bump into boats, big and small. Um, so one of the things that um, kind of modern whale studies um one of the ways they can track whales is through through their scars oh this whale has a big scar across its face and oftentimes those scars are from when uh whales kind of face plant into like the <laughs> propeller or the screw of wow. uh, a ship speaking of sexual terms screw yeah. oh that's good yeah joe it's i think one. they do hit boats a lot yeah, they do. It's just like, why don't I we see don't really have why, why isn't it in the, the front of the time? The inspiring videos of like flukes and things. Those are where the whales don't hit the boats. Okay. It's yeah. less fun when like the, the whale sort of burps his oh, oh. way around the ocean and then crashes face first into a, an oil tanker. A whale breached today. 12 people just, died. 
<laughs> happens a lot. So um, this book is, I, I'm not really going to go a ton into the story because part of the draw is literally what happens. I mean, I've given you the broad strokes. Ah. Um, there's, it's a whale ship. What's up, Nick? Broad strokes. Right. Nick, yeah, Nick feels like strokes. you just said a, a boating term. Eh, it's more of a painting term. Anyway, um, <laughs> the, the there is a ship. The ship Essex um, is trying to kill whales and boil down their blubber for, for oil, as many, many ships did in the 1800s. And it's out in the Pacific, and it's had this kind of a difficult journey so far. And then a whale rams it um, twice. So the whale bumps into the boat and then it bumps into it again. And the second time it seems like it's on purpose. Yeah. Which is spooky. That is the second time. Like, you know, the first time it might be given the benefit of the doubt, but when he does it again, seems pretty mad. Fool me once, Mm -hmm. you know, shame on, et cetera. Um, this is like concerning for whalers, by the way, because your, your whole stock and trade is going around in relatively fragile boats and stabbing these stupid creatures. But if the creatures actually start fighting back, um, they it, first of all were on their turf or or their surf rather, and second of all, um, they are hugely more strong. So this was this is concerning that the whale bumps like bumps into and then rams and sinks. Ian, is this a true story? It's a true story. That's the thing. It's good. This this is a story where the the truth is more dramatic than I think fiction could be. Like the the story here is so twisty and turny and dramatic and well told very well told but just the the shape of it is so incredible like i could not imagine us us like a a lost in the middle of the ocean story that's more dramatic than i mean with aliens i guess what about moby dick that was a good one Mm -hmm. so actually this book is this book the events of this book are the source for moby dick Oh, shit. Wait, the events of this book. So so like Herman Melville heard about this, like read about this in the paper and was like, what if? Really called my bluff there, Ian. <laughs> Herman Melville knew some of the people who were involved mm. with this with this event, um, which I guess is a minor spoiler. Spoilers people, on Moby Dick. <laughs> a, couple, no, a couple of people survived. Um, but uh, he he definitely like he he bases narrative events in Moby Dick off of this uh, historical event. Uh, he bases characters off of this, uh, this historical event. Like it's very much one of the things he was thinking about when he wrote that excellent book. And honestly, Moby Dick is a good, it's a brilliant book, but I would say the story of Moby Dick is relatively simple and straightforward. Man wants kill whale, man chase whale. Everyone grow, go crazy and die. Whale attack for four yeah. bullet points. This is like twists and turns. So they light an island on fire by accident. <laughs> they go to a different island, like when they're kind of out in the boats. Sounds hard to do. They go to a different island, and they're like, oh, cool, we're saved. There's going to be food here. There's going to be water. There's plants. And they can't find water on the island. And so they have to leave the like. So, 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 so they're like in boats, right, going across the ocean, trying to find some place to 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 support life they come to this island this island should be able to support them but there's no water and so they get back on their boats and go back into the open ocean if they had gone 70 miles the other direction they would have found civilization but instead they headed off in the wrong direction and were in the wilderness again it's just that's unlucky it's Sometimes very I, like it's a, he he ends the book kind of by saying this is a huge tragedy and people made mistakes but really it's a it's a series of unfortunate events things sort of breaking the wrong way over and over and over and it's it's ugh, the story is so good and and I'm there's a lot I'm leaving out because I don't again don't want to spoil it but there's drama there's adventure um like I say they're they're idiots they're they're idiots like they're not very good at at shipboating and so like they've been gone from their their home harbor for like uh, this is early in the voyage before they get rammed by the whale so they've been gone from their home harbor for like uh, a couple of weeks not long maybe even less than that they get into a storm and they do multiple stupid things that end up almost capsizing the ship breaking a whole bunch of their whale boats, destroying a whole bunch. Like, and, and so the ship is not crippled, but close. And they say, should we go back home and try and refit for another voyage? And the captain's like, no, no, let's push on. If they had turned around, then they would have gone back. And like a lot of the stuff that they went through wouldn't have happened. Classic captain. 
That is classic captain stuff. Yeah. Always want to keep idiots, going. They're idiots. And then bad stuff happens to them because of their idiocy. So that's mm. kind of, what's the opposite of our, of our redemption arc? Ian, I have mm. a question. A d- damnation arc. Perdition a damnation, arc. It's a damnation arc. <laughs> yes. Go ahead, Nick. Okay. What's with all the old drawings of whales looking like they got that little mouth, you know, like, mm. the, you know, they like look a like a Muppet where it's like, if you did the dog, you know, the shadow puppet. And you did the dog, mm-hmm. it yeah, would look yeah. like that. Yeah. Oh, yes. I've never right. seen a whale like that. Did they all look like that back then? <laughs> I've never a seen question. a whale like they've that. Evolved, did whales change? They've evolved dramatically. No, this is this is primarily Nick. You're Does thinking about like cover the, the sort that? of whale you would see on the front of Moby Dick. That yes. kind of thing, right? Yeah. So that's an actual that's that is a, a species of whale. It's called the sperm whale. Mm-hmm. And the sperm whale is Are they extinct? No, they're not. The deepest they, divers. They, I think they're the deepest divers. They dive super deep. They they fight and eat giant squid. Oh, they're yeah. a little bit less Why are they kind so of so sexual. Yeah, they're a little bit less kind of obvious than say you know um, a right whale. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, look at they got little mouths. Whale. They do so <laughs> so ridiculous. <laughs> so uh, a, a, a sperm whale. It's got this big massive head, this bulbous head, which is great for um, running into a ship. And breaking it oh, and, yeah. and sinking it. And then it's got this nasty little mouth, which, yes, it is kind of a goofy looking mouth. Yeah. But it's got a lot of sharp teeth yeah. and it's got a lot of biting power. And so if that thing gets a hold of you, you are you are whale boned. It yeah, looks like there's an enormous bone. whale, right? You can picture that. And then as a mouth, let's, instead let's, of let's having do this, let, let heads, let heads mm-hmm. picture along with this picture an enormous whale. Yeah. You got that? Okay, instead go of ahead, a, Nick. a mouth, it just has a like a chainsaw. <laughs> Flapping yes. on the bottom. Yes, it's like a chainsaw flange. It's it's flange. like a child would draw a whale. Like a child would draw a whale that's like more or less whale shaped, and then somebody would be like, "Well, where does its mouth?" And it would just <laughs> mm-hmm. like draw a little line toward its bottom jaw that would open, you know, like a chainsaw. This is gross. Uh, yeah, what, so uh, whales are gross. What does this author know about whales? Was he like uh, the Moby Dick author? He spent time on boats. Well, they don't really do much whaling anymore. So, uh, especially wait, the kind when was of this book written? My book was written in two thousand. Wait a minute. This wait is a, a new book. Nick looks crestfallen. Let me give you <laughs> okay. the okay. Let me give you guys. I feel like we're we're having some some timeline issues here. Okay, let me give you I'm the timeline. Major timeline issues. In eighteen twenty, the Essex is sunk by a whale. In Rest the eighteen thirties and forties, Herman Melville hears these stories, talks to the people who survived. In 1851, he publishes Moby Dick. Moby Dick is not popular, and Melville has to go back to being a boring office worker. Uh, mm-hmm. In 1920, obviously, Moby Dick is rediscovered, and people are like, wow, this is the great American novel. In 1933, Adolf Hitler <laughs> over, like, t- takes over <laughs> Germany and institutes genocide and so and forth. And he had a little mouth, too. He did he have did. a little mouth. That's why he grew that Honestly, mustache, so it looked bigger. And mm-hmm. and his and his little mouth could do great damage. Wow. So, yeah. I, I don't know if we boiled him down, if we get a lot of whale oil. Mm. I don't think he, his body fat He probably has very little for, whale oil inside of him. Yeah. <laughs> Hitler, you mean? I went to the doctor and they told me my whale oil reserves are dangerous low. Very low. Uh, and then, and then in, in the year 2000, um, in the year 2000, um, this book, is released and it's a huge it's a huge success it's a huge now do i have to be aware of this timeline to read the book nope is this book good it it sounds okay it's it's amazing let me tell you why it's amazing okay a lot of times nonfiction books the nonfiction books i've read they have a cool story but they, the story is too short for a big, long history book. Oh, yeah. And so they have to flesh it out. And that's where you get like, not just, not just like the cool event, but all of like the hundred of hundred years that led up to it. And literally everything that happens to each and every person who survived it and, and so on and so forth. A lot of times nonfiction books go just go too hard with the research. They don't know when to stop including material. They do all this research and then the, the authors do all this research and then they're like, okay, now this is all going into the book. Like I've done a lot of reading 
Yeah. I've done a lot of writing. I think you guys need to see it. It's going somewhere. Well, I think there's with the authors, there's there's sometimes there's sometimes a, a, a mistaken belief that, oh, because this helps me understand this event, it will therefore help you, the reader. But the readers don't need that much, like, especially if it's a cool story. And this book does not do that. And I can actually see as I read, I can see Philbrick not including too much. So this gives you just enough context. He's like, hey, this the story starts in Nantucket. I'm going to give you some background and history on Nantucket, but I'm not going to give you like four chapters on, you know, the quality of sand on the northern beaches or the way that the mollusks look in the evening sunlight. It's just like, here's enough for you to go by sure. and then we're going to move on. This is like Michael. When this he, is like Michael Branch talking about painting being additive versus sculpting being subtractive. Where he's like, yes, I, "I love it when my wife reads what I've written because she has a much better barometer for what is actually interesting mm-hmm, than I do." Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. This is this is, and, and I feel like it's very, very. It's obviously super well researched. He's done his work, but it's very carefully edited. Uh, I don't often say that I can see the editing in a book, but it's a good enough story that the, the, the story is allowed to be the focus. And it's a really riveting story. These guys are shipwrecked in the middle of the ocean. They have limited food. Do they live? And, and obviously we know that some of them live because they told the story and we have their records. But for the most part, it's just like, what's going to happen? When do they, you know, when do they, um, when do they get separated? There's three boats at first. Are they going to stay together the whole time? Probably not. Are they going to run, run out of food and water? What's going to happen with that? What happens when you run, run out of food in the in the open ocean? Well, you start to fish or you start to eat each other. Nick, what sets this book apart from being just good, just like, okay, cool, that's nice, I'm happy for them, or, or, or sad or whatever, what makes it really good is that it's so focused. It's so, um, we you learn, you learn but you really you really get the story mm-hmm. and it's a great story full of drama and danger and cannibalism <laughs> i have one other thing to say about this book before i stop talking about it is that okay yeah i think that's okay okay thank you it's really weird so i read this um um uh, we'll pull back the curtain a little bit lit heads we're recording this the day after the fourth of july the Ju- the fifth of fifth, july the fifth. <laughs> otherwise yeah, the fifth known of as july. And so I've been thinking a lot about America, maybe especially this this year because um, it sucks. Uh, because of <laughs> gestures, gestures wildly at everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of read this book in the context of the growth and development of the American spirit and America as sort of a cultural entity, like where we are now. And, and, and I was thinking to myself as I read this, how does this book help explain what America is today. And whaling is a really strange industry. It was a really strange industry. It was, it was this combination of like just kind of pure serendipity, things happening, things falling. Like if you found whales, you killed them and you were successful. If you didn't, you were unsuccessful. There was also a ton of really hard kind of backbreaking work, a lot of ingenuity, a lot of care that went into this. There's also this sort of ruthless extraction where there is a resource out there which we're just going to devour until it's kind of gone. And then there's also this um, this you guys know the 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 surprised Pikachu reaction face, um, just like what we've killed all the whales and there are none anymore. What? <laughs> what do we do now? How could this have happened? What a shock! So this whole kind of cloud of things kind of serendipity and and really hard ingenious work ruthless extraction and and this sort of dumbfoundedness at 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 the destruction which we cause it just all feels kind of american the whole industry feels (laughs) like a microcosm like like yes americans work hard yes americans do this like this this rugged individualism where you're conquering the wilderness or you're conquering whatever it is, but like by yourself, but also things did fall out very well for America that we ended up being able to kind of be where we are. And then this, this kind of just, we will extract, we will, we will use the resources. No matter devil, devil, take the devil, make care. Devil, take the devil, take the, and the torpedoes full speed ahead. That's it. That's the one. And then, and then when scarcity hits, when, when we start running out of things, it's like, who, who could have? Who could have? Who could have predicted this? Such a shock. 
if only someone had told us this would happen, we would have done differently. I don't know. It just felt very the 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 snapshot of America in this book is not overt. It's not at all like what he's trying to do, but I kind of saw it. Um, and that kind of coupled with uh, the gradually unwinding tragedy of this this ship and these people who are all dying. America three episode three and a half. It sounds like yeah. There, there, there it is. Next week we're doing a recommendation from Lithead Nick. Uh, this is going to get confusing, folks. Not very me. quickly. Okay. Right. This is a different Nick, a Lithead. Uh, Nick writes, you guys should read Lord of the Fry- Flies. Fries. Lord of the, <laughs> Lord Fries. Of the Fries. I went to McDonald's. Ooh, I'm hungry. Yeah. Ba, 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 ba. Uh, Lord of the Flies is what Nick writes. Again, not me. And he, he writes, uh, it shows the reality of kids and the dangers of being young. It does seem dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous. I, I remember reading Lord of the Flies when I was in ninth or 10th grade and thinking like, eh, this feels insulting. I'm not sure if you left us all on an island that it would devolve like this. But now, as an adult who spends my days with ninth and 10th graders, I think, yeah, it seems kind of accurate. (laughs) This could happen. But now I think they would just do, probably just do dances, right? TikTok dances? Dance offs. But the question is, the question is how long, how long would that, how how long would that last? Mm -hmm. You know? Oh, so like, like three, four minutes, some of the songs. Karl Marx once said that religion is the opiate of the people. I would say dances are the opiate of children. Yeah, but for sure. Opium wears off, guys. Right. So eventually. How yes. long? Eventually, yeah. Eventually. How long would it? This, we'll find out next week on You Don't Know Lit. <laughs> which is ba, 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 how I'm going to start ending all of our teases. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, what is your book all about? Nick, this week I brought a book that I loved very much called The Boys in the Boat. The climax of this book, Nick. I'm going to start at the climax. Ooh. The climax uh, of this climax book. climax is again, again really very sexual. Just, please, very sexual. Please. The climax of this book is the 1936 Olympic Games, famously hosted in Berlin, Germany, as the yeah. Nazis were on the rise to power. Oh, we know where Hitler was then. We know where Hitler was then. He was in the grandstands yeah, watching the, Olympics. the boat races. Yeah, having a good time. Do you think he probably had a special place for himself, like some cushions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like a box. I can't imagine he just sat with the rest of everybody else. Oh, just like a man of the people, like a, 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 a Volksführer, um, is sitting in the crowd oh, with everyone else. Don't say Volksführer. <laughs> That's going to get the wrong guy, track the wrong kind of lit. What is happening? Right. Um, no, Adolf Hitler did have a special spot at the Olympics. It was up in the box with all of the other, you know, Nazi nobility. All the other cool guys. Yeah, all of the all of the other Nazi, you know, evil people that would then go on to be tried in the Nuremberg trials. Um, watching the boat races as they as they went past. This book is about the American racing boat that they put together that year. And against all odds, um, while the other boats were made up of like the best athletes that Germany had to offer, the best athletes that Italy had to offer, against all odds, the American racing boat that year was put together of a bunch of lanky kids who were like loggers and farmers and fishermen from the Pacific Northwest, um, all from right around Seattle. No, this is not a motorboat, correct, Joe? How can a person be a light wheat beer? You said there were loggers. Mm-hmm. Were there any stouts among them? Right, All there right. were loggers, Just, there were stouts, yeah. there were pilsners. <laughs> very, very good. Ian, can you meet yourself for the rest of this? <laughs> <laughs> now, Joe, um, Nick, is to this answer your question, uh, no, these were not motorboats. These were the types of boats that you row with an oar, with a with a big, long stick. So, okay, we're at the Olympics, and mm-hmm. now we're going to go back in time. Right. We're at the Olympics. We're going to go back in time because Nick, if you're at the Olympics, you have started reading this book the wrong way. You've started at the end of this book and you're right. proceeding the, the wrong way. You you have to right, start at the beginning. Right. I do like talk about making uh, your main characters likable. Uh, it's nice to know at the beginning of a story that these people will beat Nazis. <laughs> it's, it, boy, it really puts you on their <laughs> side from I page mean, one. <laughs> it's it's so it's such a home. It's almost like pandering. It's like a home right. run. Mm-hmm. The first thing to understand, Nick, let me lay out the rowing landscape for you in the 1930s. Or the, the seascape. The, the seascape. The, seascape. Um, the first thing that you need to understand about this timeline is rowing was a big deal. 
at this time. Um, okay. Like, like it would be written about in the newspapers. Um, your local newspaper would like cover your local collegiate rowing, rowing teams. There was like kind of this East Coast versus West Coast big hmm. rivalry, right? Like all the East Coast Ivy League schools had this rowing just steeped in their blue blood. They'd been doing it for years and years. But lately, the West Coast has been kind of kicking the East Coast ass, um, mostly through California. Starting to be the best coast. The West Coast is emerging as the best coast at this time. Um, <laughs> uh, mostly through Cal, right? Mostly through California. California? Berkeley. Oh, okay. Mostly through California, but also through this kind of upstart rowing program up in Washington, the Pacific Northwest. So- this is all collegiate, 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 collegiate Tit. with a T. Like think about think about idiots. It's like idiots. <laughs> okay, with a think about it. Idget. Got it. Yep. Um, all all college kids. There's no like uh, state teams. Okay, this is such a great question because this blew my mind when I read this book. The German team is made up of the best nine rowers in Germany. The Italian team is made up of the best nine rowers in Italy. The Mm. Washington team, it's not even clear if it's made up of the best nine (laughs) rowers at the University of Washington. (laughs) (laughs) Got it. What a... What a flex on the other countries. We can pick seven... We can pick nine randos Mm -hmm. from north the northwest of our country and they can whoop you guys it doesn't seem like we want to win no well and it's crazy (laughs) because like this is before the time where at least you know now the american rowing team is like the nine best rowers in america right this is before that time this is when like the team that you send to the olympics is the team that happens to win the ncaa that year and of course that's a much smaller um sampling that you're taking from I, this this is I'm going to give you some roles that people have. So Nick, on this team, on this road, on in this boat, you have the a coach who's like taciturn and a bit recalcitrant. Mm, um, he wow. was I a don't know what phenom. Taciturn and recalcitrant in this economy. In, in this economy, he was like a phenom rower at Washington. Something like eight or nine years earlier. Phenomenal. Nick, he, he he was a phenom. He was like the best stroke that Washington ever had, but Nick, he never went all the way to 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 the glory, to the gold, <laughs> to the glory. He <laughs> didn't go to the glory. He didn't go to the glory. Nick, I hate it when they don't go to the glory. Another character in this book is the wise old boat builder who handcrafts boats lovingly in the upstairs loft of the Washington Shell House. He makes boats entirely out of hand because he believes that power tools make you like lose the feel of the wood. Um, And when he builds a shell, when he builds a boat, he says that he leaves a piece of his heart in every one that he makes. Oh my God. That is (laughs) disgusting, Ian, huh? Do you think he's just like kind of flopping there? Mm -hmm. Ian, let's just say he only made one boat. Nick, there's a coxswain uh, named Bobby Mock. And Nick, you would love the cox because this guy is an asshole. He was. (laughs) This is just insulting to everybody. (laughs) (laughs) He was this sickly kid. He's hyper competitive. He plays mind games with the other boats. Um, There is this guy, the protagonist of the story named Joe Rance. He's this depression era kid who's been abandoned by his family because they can't feed him anymore. He has had to learn to make his own way in the world. He spends his whole life learning how to survive on his own. But now, Nick, he needs to learn to trust the people around him. (laughs) (laughs) This does sound like cool runnings. Yeah, I mean, it it very much is like a a lot of this book is this is how we got the team together. These are all the different strengths and weaknesses that these guys bring. Do you think much like my book, Cool Runnings was based on these events. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think both of our books might be based on Cool Runnings. Can we go back to your timeline earlier, Ian? Probably not. <laughs> I think one of the things that may, the way that these guys are presented in this book is very much in contrast to the like, um, hyper athletic 
well-nourished state-sponsored athletes that they will ultimately end up going against, right? Like these guys in this boat are the underdogs every time they row against California, their neighbors to the south. They're the underdogs every time they travel to the East Coast and row against these blue-blooded Ivy League programs. And they're definitely the underdogs when they go across the Atlantic Ocean, get off in like this shiny state-sponsored Berlin and row against all these um, Nazis. Not Nazis. Well, there there are other people. They were the they weren't not Nazis. They were so. Not Nazis. Um, well, but there were some. There were some from like England who right. were, who were not Nazis. Right. Some people were like from Croatia. So. Yeah. Compliant. Um, Is there ever a time? Go. You got a question. Go ahead, Nick. Oh, did you have something really good there? To- <laughs> I was going to ask. Is there ever a time like you know you can only maintain underdog status for so long before you become. Overdog. The overdog. Right. Yeah. You're the overdog now. Yeah. And it's, dog. So, so that's a good question because Dude, that's like, something. Is, is there any point where they, they shed this and it's like, oh man, these are this is a force to be reckoned with? Or do are people that stupid that they just keep counting these people out? They just can't recognize the greatness. That's one thing that's kind of interesting throughout this book because they are presented as the underdogs all the way throughout this book. Even once they get to the Olympics, there's various mm. heats and time trials that get you into the final race because that last race only has, you know, six boats in it, eight boats in it or whatever out of all the sure. countries who might send somebody. And the Americans go into that with the best time trial, right? Like, so in the heats, they were the fastest boat. But the way that the Germans respond to that is they put them in. Instead of like the prestigious front lane that they've earned, they put them all the way out in the river, in the wind and the waves and the chop, uh, and they they handicap them in that way. So even once they are like the strongest boat, they put them way out there to, to you know, Weird. languish. It is going to hate. Joe, um, th- this is a very historic period. Mm-hmm. Um, do you get anything out of this book beyond boating? Um, is there any sort of like, you know, taste of life here or or anything like that? Firsthand accounts, things like that. Waving to Hitler. There's two big tastes of life here. One of them is depression era stuff, right? Like most of this book or all of this book is set in the great depression. Joe Rance, one of our protagonists is kicked out of his family more or less because they cannot feed him anymore. They like his dad gets remarried. His Mm -hmm. new wife has children of her own, and she decides that Joe is eating too much at dinner, and they move away without him. These athletes, carbo-loading, you know? (laughs) The other slice that you get from this is Nazi propaganda slice. Like, a whole Mm. angle of this is the way that Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime were trying to portray or present the the Nazi party and the new Germany during this time. They go into like this great length, uh, this great depth about this German filmmaker who is essentially given free reign to film the Olympics oh, um, yeah. and and who has basically one of the lines in the book that stuck with me is they're like, is the writer says, think of any image that you can conjure of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, right? Like think of them marching in, in uniform. Think of them like, you know, in their, in their pretty outfits, like think of any show of power that you could think of from the Nazis. He says, it comes from this film that this woman made as she, as she documented the rise to the 1936. What's her name? Give me a second. She was the, she was like the, the one. Yeah. She was like the Um, woman. The, the 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 Nazi propagandist, La, Lenny Riefenstahl. That's it, Riefenstahl. Yeah, interesting. Mm, yeah, and and like and and it's it, like there's details behind the scenes of her fighting with Joseph Gope, Goebbels, Gobbles, Go, Gobbles, Gobbles, Gobble, 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 Gables, Gobbles, Gables, um, of her fighting with him as because like Hitler liked her a little more, like gave her power um, that she didn't that he didn't give her, um, and in in her stupid view. Being liked by Hitler was a good thing. Yeah. I love a good stupid. angle. Good <laughs> angle, Lenny. I love the way you get rid of my double chin. <laughs> or however is that, he talks. Nick, is that your Hitler? Yeah, it's is that your good Hitler? enough. It's good. Who cares, right? Yeah. So, uh, oh, so, okay. So it goes into the whole their experience, you know, kind of, or what they saw when they were at the games, basically, or? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay, like, it, it follows them from a few years before the boat, for, before the games to them actually getting off the boat 
uh, in Germany, walking around the streets of Berlin, interacting with the German population and racing at those games. Can you tell us the overt message without spoiling the race and who won? Uh, the overt message is that Americans are awesome. And okay. what oh makes boy. us great is that we are scrappy and tough and tenacious and and awesome. Okay. And this is, again, I this is like Americans that, from 1936. This is 1936 <laughs> Americans God, specifically, yeah. yes. Because, <laughs> like, I... I'd never seen a scrappy one recently. <laughs> well, it, it actually, so I, I'm teasing a little bit here, but like if you were asking me for an alert, overt message, it really does talk about the character of these young guys and how in order to be part of, you know, p- part of a successful boat, if it will, right? In order to be part of a successful boat, it really does require this surrender of an individual identity in in service of something larger than yourself, right? Like you give up yourself. Sounds like communism. <laughs> yeah, it's just yes, a yes, socialist yes. boat. It's actually really interesting that that this is like, because I was talking about how my boat story kind of talked, it represented a certain vision of America. And Joe's seems like it represents a different, maybe even contradictory vision where like Americans can possibly, mm-hmm. no spoilers, accomplish amazing things like destroying Nazis in, in the in the water. If they work together and kind of put aside the individualism, the, the desire for individual glory, work as part of a team and we can conquer. That's a really interesting kind of counterpoint. Unless a whale hits you. Did a whale hit them in the water? A whale did not come up. Not a lot of river whales in Germany. Um, I'm not saying none. I'm not saying <laughs> zero, but not right, so many. Right, right, right. That makes sense. In 1936, um, uh, there's, there's a, a horrifying connection between our two books here. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1936, Hitler was kind of uh, ascending. He was he was building, mm-hmm. as you say, his shiny new uh, world without people without without various people groups that he hated. And um, part of this was the desire to establish a whaling colony in Antarctica. And so he set up whaling. Uh, he set up an expedition to land and occupy part of Antarctica so that they could do whaling down there and it didn't work because world war ii started oh they wanted to use tough. the whale or the whale uh oil for margarine Ugh. margarine's gross right joe yeah. whale margarine might be gross whale margarine it's a good thing that joe's boys went over there and did their thing because right. otherwise we might have hitler's whale margarine for sale on our shelves yeah you can thank my book and my boys in my boat for giving hitler the what for <laughs> Gentlemen, two excellent boat books this week. Good Just boat take books. a moment to give yourself a round of applause on that one. Pat on the back. Uh, Joe, you lose. Oh, dang. I just don't really, I don't want to hear about Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. It's, like, can we just move on? It's mostly as, about the boat. As far as villains go, <laughs> a, a big old whale is a better villain than Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Congratulations, <laughs> Ian. Uh, Nick, poor choice, but you know, you can't get them all right. Um, can't get them all. Lidheads, Lidheads, I strongly recommend The Boys in the Boat. It's a wonderful book. Um, it's, there's a PBS documentary called The Boys of 36, and George Clooney is making mm. a movie out of it. So I'd recommend either of those things. Um, if you would like to recommend us, we'd like you to recommend us to a bookish friend. Um, find your bookish, most bookish friend. They're probably a little introverted, but like knock on their door, bust it open, like peel the book out of their hand and say, don't be afraid to hurt them. Don't be afraid to, well, at least scare them. No, no, do, do be afraid to hurt them and, and do decide not to hurt them, please. <laughs> you don't know that it's a podcast. Um, if you want to show your it's love in podcast. other ways, you can like, review, subscribe, etc. Um, also, we still have a handful of stickers left. You can head on over to you don't know lit podcast.com. There's a button that says get a sticker and Ian will send you one um, with one of his handwritten notes and I think a couple of his eyelashes in case you want to clone mm-hmm. Ian for Ian at home. Out of eyelashes, I do. I am doing a locket of my hair, though. I oh, did great, think so. he looked surprised this whole episode. Ian is yeah. out of eyelashes. Uh, out of eyelashes. <laughs> but yes, you do get the. You do get the. Uh, <laughs> Ian is hairless. Also, well, and there's also a, a certificate of authenticity. It's, it's really my hair. It's not, for instance, the hair of a chicken. Congratulations, right. Ian. Congratulations, whale books. I'm going to read you a quote from. Um, uh, before the crash, um, when they're just kind of bumbling their way, the, the, the whalers are bumbling their way around 
uh, the Pacific Ocean, they, they stop off at the Galapagos Islands. And one of the things they do there is harvest Galapagos turtles because Galapagos oh, turtles... Geez. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah, um, they 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 live. They can live for a long time without food. <laughs> Not with the boaters around. Plus, <laughs> so you keep them on the deck, and eventually, like you you eat them as you need to. It's really brutal. Anyway, um, you read this Galapagos turtle stuff, and you're like, wow, I I kind of think these people deserve to be rammed by a whale. Mm. And then it gets worse. Oh God! On the morning of October 22nd, Thomas Chapel, a boat steerer from Plymouth, England, decided to play a prank. Not telling anyone else on the Essex what he was up to, the mischievous chapel brought a tinderbox ashore with him. As the others searched the island for tortoises, chapel secretly set a fire in the underbrush. It was the height of the dry season, and the fire soon burned out of control, surrounding the tortoise, hunt, hunt, tortoise hunters and cutting off their route back to the ship. With no other alternative, they were forced to run through a gauntlet of flame. Although they singed their clothes and hair, no serious injuries resulted at least not to the men of the Essex. By the time they returned to the ship, almost the entire island was ablaze. The men were indignant that one of their own had committed such a stupid and careless act, but it was the captain who was the most upset. The captain's wrath knew no bounds, remembered one sailor, swearing vengeance upon the head of the incendiary should he be discovered. Fearing a certain whipping, Chapel did not reveal his role in the conflagration until much later. Nickerson believed, the sailor believed, that the fire killed thousands upon thousands of tortoises, birds, lizards, and snakes. The Essex had left a lasting impression on the island. When Nickerson returned to Charles Island years later, it was still a blackened wasteland. Wherever the fire raged, neither trees, shrubbery, nor grass have since appeared, he reported. Charles Island would be one of the first islands in the Galapagos to lose its tortoise population. Although the crew of the Essex had already done its part in diminishing the world's sperm whale population, it was here, on this tiny volcanic island, that they contributed to the eradication of a species. When they weighed anchor the next morning, Charles Island remained an inferno. That night, after a day of sailing west along the equator, they could still see it burning against the horizon. Backlit by the red glow of a dying island, the twenty men of the Essex ventured into the farthest reaches of the Pacific looking for another whale to kill. <laughs>